Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today in the studio with me is Michael Dimon, the founder and CEO of Sea to Table, a fish distribution business that focuses on taking fish directly from the fisherman's boat to your plate. Welcome to the studio, Michael. It's great to have you back, man. Hi, Katie. Great to see you. Yeah. So um, we have a lot to talk about, tons to cover in the next 30 minutes. So let's jump right into the fact that uh, the big news this week in the fish industry was that the cod uh, catch share was slashed by 77% for the New England fisheries. And that's from Nova Scotia down to roughly Cape Cod. And that means that all the people who rely on fishing for cod and other ground fish have just lost basically 77% of their livelihood. Let's... You know, deconstruct what happened to us. It's for a us. very, very big deal for traditional fishing communities in New England. Yeah, uh, New England was built on cod. Uh, um, that's why they named it Cape Cod. Yeah, and uh, if you haven't read Mark Kurlansky's amazing book, book, Cod, great book. Go right to it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the fishermen up there are kind of in a panic right now. Yeah. Um, cod stocks had uh, had seemed to be growing very very well over the last six or seven years of strong management and a year ago they did a survey and found that the stocks had plummeted right uh the management has been good fishermen has not been overfishing them they've been using the proper method the proper techniques they've been doing it the right way but the fish just disappeared uh people are real concerned traditionally people think it's overfishing but i'm not sure that's what's happened now the water in the Gulf of Maine last summer was seven degrees above some norm. Um, the amount of temperature change that's happened in the waters in New England has been dramatic. Yeah. And the wisdom now is that the fish, the cod particularly, that species needs real cold water, right. have gone to Greenland. And it's not that, they've, that the fishermen have done anything wrong. It's the cod are looking for places to the fish can't keep the right spawn. temperature. Right. They That's can't it. reproduce in warm water. It's real bad. Right? And fishermen now are in the position where they can't make a living. Yeah. Uh, and it's a real difficult situation. Well, the news stories were full of fishermen who were interviewed saying, well, I'm putting my boat on the market. I'm out. I'm done. And, um, you know, I'm a New Englander myself. I come from a fishing community. I know what it means. Like, there's so many people in my community who I'm sure, are, I mean, we are mostly sort of lobster skate, you know, in Rhode Island. But mm-hmm. but it's still a huge impact on the overall health of the coastline um, to have fishermen go out of business like this. And then there's all the ancillary businesses that go along with it's not the just fishing the industry. Right, it's yeah. All, it's, it's the all guys the who are in the boat yards. It's the, the whole community surrounding it. Yeah. It's a it's, big deal. It's really huge. So... Um, one of the other fish that comes up when you fish for cod, I think, are, are other ground fish like pollock, There's haddock. A lot of, cod has, thankfully for the fishermen of New England, cod has a bunch of close cousins yeah. that have not gone away and seem to handle the slightly warmer water and are quite abundant and uh, being caught in really good numbers. So, Primarily pollock 
an haddock. Yeah, but aren't those... I mean, don't you catch a lot of cod when you catch pollock and haddock? I mean, it's the same method. Can you describe the method and the gear that they use to catch those ground fish? They're pulling nets. They're trawling nets. Um, they, uh, they've actually come up with some interesting uh, approaches to segregate species by catch. Um, I'd love to hear what that is. Um, like, is it net size? Well, it's, you know, it's well, size well, of net. It's actually uh, height in the water. Yep. Size of net. But the, the funny thing is, is that when a net comes... Um, cod go in an upward direction when they see a net, where the other fish go in a downward direction. So you actually can align the net to, to specify whether you want to try to get cod or you want to try to get pollock. Fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting. They took the, uh, we have friends at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute mm-hmm. up in Portland. Terrific organization. They're dedicated to understanding the science of, the, of what goes on up there. They support the fishing communities. They have... Uh, they're just very supportive of sustainable fisheries in general, and uh, they have some really great programs, and they've come up with some, some analysis on this that's helped fishermen uh, actually target carefully which species they'll catch. Right. It's, it's neat. It is neat. I'm, I'm definitely going to follow up on this. I yeah. want to do a whole series on seafood and what's going on in the Gulf of Maine and all of that stuff, because there, there are so many great scientists who are working on these projects. Truly. And losing fisheries on New England is sort of like losing the New England identity. I mean... It's, it's, a real, it's, <laughs> yeah. central, it's central to the identity of New England. It is, totally. Absolutely. Um, so to go back to the... Um, how, do, how do the fishermen actually report, or how do they figure out what the population of a fishing, of a fishing species is? Okay, there's a pretty complex science to this okay. uh, it's, it's uh, uh, NOAA runs this through the National Fisheries Institute uh-huh. and um, they have a whole bunch of scientists go out and do surveys and do analysis and figure out what the actual uh, uh, biomass of the population is based on some statistical testing models then they figure out what the maximum sustainable yield to let the biomass not decrease and increase Right, and then that becomes the quota in effect. So let's let's for a second backtrack uh, and go to Magnuson Stevenson Act, which is the one that created what we call now the catch share system, which has been in place since I don't know eighty six, I think. Okay, all right. I thought it was catch shares are not. No, Magnuson Stevenson <coughs> just said that uh, by the year twenty twelve, I think, oh. that all U.S. fisheries uh, must be managed to the point that they are no longer being overfished or subject to overfishing. Uh huh, and there's a, and, and there's different ways of managing it. Right, catch shares is the uh, is, is the most is a recent. more recent thing, and actually yeah. is a uh, although it's difficult to transition a fishery to, to individual fish quotas or catch shares. It, ultimately, it's a really effective way of doing it more safely. It's better for the fishermen, much better, better for the fishing communities, and better for the fish. Yeah, even though a lot of the people in the fishing community I know they really objected they to it initially. It. But yep. um, I interviewed a guy uh, in Rhode Island who, you know, initially was very resistant, and then ultimately came to see that it was a brilliant thing to it, do. It happened all over. Yeah. Everybody, fishermen are um, a very independent, um, highly spirited crew. Yeah, and uh, you don't change what they do; they do what they do, and that's how they do it. Yeah, so, absolutely. So like, change is difficult. So let's talk. Let's describe what catch shares is. What it means is that a population is estimated, right? right. And then each individual fishing group, whether it's a, a group of of boats or individual boat, is allotted a certain number of fish that they can catch throughout the year. Is that correct? Basically, right. Um, what happens is the like the New England Management Council will decide that there's X amount of sustainable yield from the Pollock stock. Mm-hmm. So there's if there was a uh, uh, hundred thousand pounds that could be done, and there were a hundred fishermen, yeah, they each would get a thousand pounds to catch, and they can go and catch it 
uh, at their own pace, the way it's most economically advantageous to them. Uh, they uh, they they they're able to spread it out so it doesn't all happen at once. Right, which was the problem before when they had just the quotas, right. and so the fish would be flooding into the market. Be a derby. Yeah. Everyone would run Everyone out would and try to out. catch as fast as they can to make the quota. And then the price would go the price, down because the, the market would, would be flooded. That's what yeah. worked. Yeah. Right. And it's funny that they resisted changing that. I, th- I thought that was crazy, but anyway. A very interesting deal with, deal population. Deal with fishermen for a while. Yeah. You'll, you'll understand <laughs> that sometimes the logic is challenging. Well, I think that's true in almost any of the agricultural industries. Yep. I mean, I follow the the animal ag yep. um, very closely, and even though there is so much pushback on what the current model is, the current corporate uh, consumer-driven model, you know, in terms of cheap meat, <laughs> right? Um, you know, they don't want to change it, even though it's not even that great for them. Their prices are depressed. These guys are not making money. I think they're starting to get it, and I think that uh, God, I maybe so. maybe we're all starting to get it. Uh, maybe you know it's it's hard to see. I mean, you see it because your your company, Sea to Table, sells throughout the country to restaurants all over the yep. United States, mm-hmm. right? Yes, sir. And your company has grown exponentially. I mean, if anybody wants to go take a look at the Sea to Table website, um, having known Michael since pretty much not the inception of the company, but pretty you know like four years now, and I've seen it just the dots on your map of where you're selling to. We're, we're growing real well. It's we're now, unbelievable. We're now working with nineteen or twenty different around the country yeah and uh, we have, we're working with over 500 restaurants around the country that's amazing Michael it's really it's so lovely to hear that it's so great to see that kind of growth happen even in spite of a depressed economy and a pl- you know and where you think like the restaurant industry is always you know everybody t- talks about how much is taking a hit for fine dining no people Pe- will pay people well it's more than that people want to eat better they fish it. yeah they want to know where their fish came from mm-hmm. they want to know how it was caught where it was caught when it was caught and fishermen love to know where his fish is going. Traditionally, it com- becomes a commodity. He doesn't even know where it goes. Yeah, he, it just he goes into a warehouse, right. And he doesn't know when, when the money's going to come. But under, with our model, he actually knows that his fish has been eaten in restaurants in Chicago or Denver or San Francisco or New York. And he loves that. Yeah. Well, I remember the guy that I interviewed last year for an article at, um, for Food Arts, uh, talking about his model which was k- kind of similar to his wild roadie dot com LLC sure. yeah sure. so you know those guys sure. Steve Allen I know Steve Arnold. Steve Arnold Arnold I know Steve and, and Point um, Judith yes exactly yeah. and Steve was um, you know he was saying that what he really cared about was knowing that you know his fish was tagged and it was his fish right. and it's not somebody else's fish going in with his tags or you know like he had total control over the, the entire supply chain and that was something that was very comforting to him which I totally understood and of course he could also command a premium price because he knew you know, and people could go on his website or on his platform mm-hmm. and see which boat was catching what, when, and where. When was that fish landed? You know, how long did it spend in the hold? When did it get to the restaurant? Yep. I mean, really a that, cool, you know. They do a great job. We, they do exactly the same type of traceability we do. Yes. Uh, they're actually friends of ours. The guy that invented the trace so. and trust system that he uses is a right. friend of mine. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, um, he was very cool, that guy. I liked him Yeah, a lot. good stuff. Yeah, yeah. So um, let's move on because we're going to take a break in just a second. But I want to sort of um, go on to talk about um, the Gulf spill, which was our original Uh sort of reason for getting together and and talk about what has happened since that explosion in 2010 and 200 million gallons of oil spewed out over a course of three months. And everybody thought this was the worst ecological disaster 
ever. The pictures on TV were not pretty. And when I was looking back through the news reportage over this, uh, when I was preparing for the show, uh, you know, the photograph just of the well blowing up right. was unbelievable. And then the amount of oil that came out and the fact that they couldn't cap it. Like, I, I, you know, I followed all those stories again to kind of refresh my memory. And it was just, it was an astonishing story. And one of the things that came out really, in a, and I could not find this report again, unfortunately, but um, one of the reports that I read said that one of the things that had made this disaster even more disastrous was that the Obama administration, this really surprised me, refused to allow foreign vessels in to help with the containment of the oil. Did you read that? I remember controversy about that because it was all Why would that be? Why would that decision remember, have been made? I, I don't know if it was the Obama administration or BP itself. I remember there being all kinds of arguments uh, of who has jurisdiction and who's going to be responsible for what. And uh, you could sense lawyers in the background uh, <laughs> uh, uh, seething. Yeah, we're seething, rubbing their legs yeah, together like yeah, crickets yeah, yeah, in yeah, anticipation yeah, yeah. of giant fees. Right. Um, Joe, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come right back and talk more about the Gulf oil spill and, um, and more about fishering, fisheries in general with Michael Dimon of Sea to Table. Thanks so much. Stay tuned. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery. In our industrial world, most wines have become brands, but the wines I love are so much more. Fine wine is a civilizing substance that connects us to nature. It cannot be stamped out in a factory. If you're listening to this great show, you probably eat different. I urge you to drink different, too. Go deeper. Cane5.com You're listening to Mad as Dogs by the Hollows on the Heritage Radio Network. Org. We're back. <laughs> Michael's like, we're chatting away during the thing. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and in the studio with me today is Michael Dimon from Sea to Table, a fantastic business that brings fishermen uh, to restaurants and restaurants to fishermen and to institutions, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But right now, we're talking about the Gulf of Mexico oil spill, which was kind of the genesis for this whole thing. You know, after two years plus had gone by, I thought, you know, what happened here? And Michael, you wanted, you said to me, where did where did the oil go? Where did it go? So where did it go? It's a really strange and sort of disturbing story. Uh, <laughs> that uh, the the images that we all saw live on television of that uh, that well spewing out millions and millions of gallons into the Gulf, like it just appeared to be and horrible slicks that were miles just and miles calamity. Long and they yeah. put the dispersant into the water to try to break it up in this. But um, I don't know. A funny thing happened. Um, I was at a meeting with, uh, at the Smithsonian with NOAA last year, and uh, they came and made an announcement that they had spent the last year and something studying everything about this, and they can't find the oil. And they tested over 10,000 samples of fish, and they could not find a bit of toxicity wow. in any of the fish. And it was like, uh, I, I, saw, I heard this in a meeting, and it was a big thing on an industry-wide basis. And I went to a big to-do. Uh, it was an event at the Smithsonian the, that evening. And uh, uh, Jane Lubchenco, who's the, the recently resigned head of, the, of NOAA, mm -hmm. stood up and told the same thing to a very large crowd at the Smithsonian. And the place went silent. Yeah, and there were no cheers. The people were virtually angry. 
Yeah. That there was not such not a big problem, <laughs> and that they they wanted so much to be hating on BP. Yeah. And be angry about this, which is a natural reaction. Absolutely. But the oil doesn't seem to have uh, it couldn't be found, and uh, the scientists believe that it actually has been consumed by microbes in the Gulf. There's a whole class of, I think it's bacteria, mm-hmm. that um, actually live on eating, consuming petroleum hydrocarbons. Amazing. And they live naturally in the Gulf because, I don't know, what do they say? A quarter of all the oil that was spilled in that, in that calamity naturally seeps into the Gulf every year from the, from the ocean floor. Sure. And just because that's the, the, the oil yeah. is there. And, these, and there's a whole class of, of bacteria that eat this stuff. Apparently, ex- populations of stuff exploded and just went and ate it all. Amazing. Then, an interesting, then it just disappeared. Yep. Now, I mean, there is something called the dirty bathtub syndrome that they talk about in some of the papers that I read. There was just, in case people are interested, there was a um, conference on the health of the Gulf uh, in New Orleans uh, just about two weeks ago. Um, January 26th or 29th or something like that. And there are a lot of papers and a lot of abstracts that you can download and take a look at if you're really interested, if you want, really want to geek out on this stuff. And they covered everything from the psychological effects of the spill to, you know, the impact of PAH on, you know, the carbon atmosphere. I mean, it was, it's the like stir- really... The yeah, exactly. It, it is very, very detailed uh, papers and there were literally like 50 or 60 of them that were delivered at this thing, oral presentations or papers that you can access. So um, do go and look at that website is quite interesting but um one of the things that they that they pointed out in this was that um that the stocks of fish rebounded in the most fascinating way as you're saying michael and part of that was because other fish were not preying on those fish so there was some kind of like uh, you know because some fish did not thrive under the circumstances and others rebounded as a result of I think that so the, there's kind of a mixed bag there but I, I, we've been seeing we work with fishermen in, uh, in the panhandle of Florida in mm-hmm. Destin we work with shrimpers in Port St. Joe Florida and uh, they've been seeing incredible incredible numbers of fish coming in and the theory is is that these little microbes that ate the oil right were all consumed by the krill who were then consumed by the forage fish who then fed right up the food chain, and red snapper populations, which 10 years ago were deeply in trouble in the Gulf, right? and four years ago were still in low numbers. Uh, this year, last year's catch, 2012's poundage of red snapper is 55% above what it was the year before the spill. That's amazing. It's just crazy. Yeah, that's really, really scary. But, but good. In, good in for a good the way. Fishermen. In a good way. Yeah. Uh, our but, our but fishermen really are weird. seeing more fish than they've seen in twenty years, and it's a, it's kind of a very counterintuitive and strange uh, consequence. But it's kind of a good thing in a funny, funny way. It is a good thing. But it's not something that you'd want to see. I mean, there are so many oil-related disasters in our waters. And now, and one of the things that they took up in this particular um, conference was whether or not they should extend um, a drilling operations to the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Is that right? Did you read about that? I have not read about that. Okay. so But it's the same kind of idea where you have a very oil-rich area, but it's also a, a place that is very rich in seafood and They're and trying to do more population. in Alaska. They're trying to do yeah. more drilling in offshore in Alaska. And... You know, and they, and 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 you and I, and probably everybody who's listening, saw that rig floating aimlessly Correct. around. <laughs> Correct, it was terrible. <laughs> yeah, 
It's terrible. I mean, they don't seem to have a lot of control. And so in a way, like learning that fisheries can rebound from a massive oil spill like this uh, without suffering too, too much. Although let's qualify that by saying that the marshlands, the, all the, of the The shoreline inland, was terrible. Yeah. Uh, the oyster industry is suffering tremendously. A terrible the inshore problem. nurseries are suffering tremendously. Uh, the oil spill was a horrible, horrible tragedy. It's just that in, specifically in a set of fish populations, they've gone way up. Yeah. So oil companies should not rest back on their laurels and say, well, just the cost of doing business. I think it's... Uh, I Do you think that the award was enough? Do you think $4 billion was enough? I don't know what the money story is. I know that burning petroleum hydrocarbons and burning fossil fuel and making carbon in the atmosphere is a dumb thing to do from the get. So any in-between things just don't really matter. I guess that's true, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> you make an excellent point there. Um, so... The bottom line is, though, is that these fisheries, in terms of like red snapper, how about grouper, mahi mahi? Groupers are coming back. Mahi mahi populations are strong. Wow. Tuna populations are doing well. In the Amazing. Gulf. And the Gulf is actually doing better. The, again, this is, comes from the catch share management system that's in place. Right. And they're not allowed plus to only the catch fact as that much as they do. Yeah, and they weren't allowed to catch any fish during the year of 2010, if they, I'm not they, mistaken. They were closed for they almost a year. They were closed yeah. for almost right. a year, and so that would rebuild as well. Really, yep. really exploded because of that. Fishermen are happy, though, in the Gulf, which is um, a wonderful surprise. Yeah. We thought, we thought at the time that we were going to be doing a triage for our guys down there and trying Absolutely. to figure out how to keep them going. Yeah. And it turned out that. We have fit, we have boats landing four and five days a week, day boaters out of out of uh, Florida Panhandle. Yeah, filling the boat up, just doing wow. real well. Uh, uh, you know, inside the quota. Yeah, and uh, we're letting people enjoy beautiful red snapper all over the place. Yeah, isn't that nice? It's really cool. Yeah, it is really cool. So um, let's just talk for a second. We have like eight minutes left here. Um, so let's talk a little bit about sea to table because I want people to realize like what where you're going with this. I love the idea that you're bringing fresh fish into institutions like schools, universities, and possibly eventually a hospital or two. Um, Give us a sense of like what's happened. We've we've developed the business uh, mostly selling to uh, uh, better restaurants and bringing uh, 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 beautiful fresh fish next day uh, right from the boat, traceable right right to the boat, to the captain, to the method of catch. Right. and delivering it the next day to beautiful restaurants all around the country. And we work with fisheries all through Alaska. We work with uh, our friends the, uh, uh, from up in Bristol Bay, Alaska, and Kodiak out in Dutch Harbor. We work with guys in the Cook Inlet. We work with guys down in southeast Alaska. And we work with guys in the Olympic Peninsula in Washington. We work with guys through the Gulf, down in the Carolinas and Florida, uh, in the Chesapeake. And we work with guys not not 100 miles from here, out in Montauk, New York. Right. Uh, where actually, last week, they caught a 150-pound opa, which is a warm water species in January wow. off the Hudson Canyon in New York, which is another amazing indication of uh, changing times in the ocean. Yeah. Uh, so are we going to be catching grouper off the coast of New England it's in another not, 10 years? That is, that there is a school of thought <laughs> that says that things are changing rapidly. Because I know in the lobster industry, that's having a big mm-hmm. impact, the warming of the waters like around the that sort of lower New England you part can't, of the coast. Lobster's not happening there. It's, they're go, all only soft Maine. shell. Only and, Gulf of Maine. Yeah. That's it. And, yeah. and, and Canada, the provinces. That's right. Very And we work with guys all through New England. And uh, what we've done is the business has been uh, uh, delivering to these white, collar, white tablecloth restaurants. We have this crazy idea that we'd like more people to eat better fish. Yeah. 
And we've started to uh, develop programs for institutions. We're focused first on higher ed, and we're looking to have college campuses around uh, be able to connect directly with the fishermen, sort of in the same way that they're relating in the, the farm-to-table movement. Yep. We're looking to have them relate to their fishermen as a seat to table kind of So concept. you were working with like Sodexo, Bon Appetit, like those kinds of companies that supply those institutions or we, we is actually, it more on an individual basis? We, we've, we started our effort with self-operated colleges. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've gone after what they call the self-ops. Yep. Although we are selling to Bon Appetit management and to Sodexo in smaller quantities mm-hmm. and we're working towards that. Uh, that'll be a, that's a little more of a difficult nut to crack. But yeah. uh, the, the, the self-operated universities that we've come in contact with over this past three or four months since we started the program have been very responsive and we have our first half dozen or so universities that That's started great. to work with us that is it's very exciting and it's, it's uh, really exciting. i think it's really uh it's good for everybody for the fishermen for the fishing communities for the students yeah you know it's a it's a it's a real good thing well what's interesting about this to me is that um the kids are actually demanding this right and and it, it says something about the 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 way the consumer focus is going to be skewed in the coming generation as they enter the workforce and start making their own choices it's like whether they grew up with you know a parent who was concerned or interested in in supplying good quality food or just needed to get food on the table and didn't care where it came from all of which totally legitimate, but you know these kids are really they're they're I mean at the risk of sounding uh, calling them food snobs they're kind of food snobs. Oh, they're, like they're they terrific. want to know. I, they I've got, want to see where it's coming from. I've gone and eaten. Uh, I've had lunch at a couple of campuses over the last few months, mm-hmm. and it's not the experience I had in the college <laughs> dining room. They're fantastic. You can't shit believe on what, a shingle. Uh, you can't believe how good <laughs> these kids eat. Yeah. And the other thing is is that as as campus populations become uh, more global. Um, uh, fish is more appropriate as a as a thing as a to protein. eat yeah. as a protein. Um, so, uh, kids who grew up in America uh, maybe haven't eaten as much fish, but a lot of places in the world that is the primary protein. Right, and like um, they're really demanding. Well, certainly having better the Asian fish. population. It's, I mean, uh, all absolutely, over, all yeah. over. Yep. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, so uh, before we wind this up, because I want I want to like talk a little bit more about the New England fisheries, because we we ex- exchanged over the the break that there is there are other fish besides cod. Yep. There are other things that New England fisheries are doing, yep. and that people should support New England fishermen during this time of t- really true economic crisis uh, by buying some other products from them and demanding those from restaurants and from supermarkets or fishmongers. So, what are those other fish that they could be that they're landing that could substitute for cod or take the place of? There's a number of beautiful species that uh, that are abundant in both George's Bank and the, Go- and the Gulf of Maine. Mm-hmm. But the two closest cousins to cod really are pol- Atlantic Pollock and Atlantic Haddock. And um, they're both beautiful, uh, white flesh fish. Right. Very similar to cod. Um, my friends in Portland, Maine, prefer Pollock to cod. Uh, most England, New Englanders prefer halibut to cod. Uh, excuse me, haddock to cod. Yeah. And... Um, uh, What's scrod, Michael? Scrod Isn't is, that Pollock? No, scrod. Well, scrod, scrod is sort of a, a market term. Yeah, it's sort of like anything to catch kind of stuff. It's oh. kind of like uh, <laughs> kind of catch of a day. It's kind of a, a, a misnomer. It's whatever that white fish is. Right, kind of, kind of. <laughs> but um, funny. Uh, po- Pollock Pollock populations are truly abundant. They're they're really they're 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 very big. Uh, catches are constant. Quality is extremely high. Mm-hmm. Price is good. So you ha- because there's not market demand as much as for cod because of the 
historic and famous nature I know, of cod. Why is, I mean, cod is People's, totally bland. I mean, there and, is and nothing great about cod. I mean, Pollock I'm not has, a fish lover, but it's just not that great. Pollock is, has a very similar yeah. flake. It's got a slightly, um, um, a more slightly more flavorful. It looks a lot like it. It cooks in all the same recipes the same way. Yes. It's half the price, and it's better. It's totally abundant, totally sustainable. Yeah. And it's the fish that will be able to feed the fishermen in New England fishing communities. Right. So we're we're hoping that people realize what's going on, and go and try to uh, uh, look for alternate species, specifically cod's close cousins. Right. And uh, these are kind of underutilized, underappreciated species that people really should enjoy. Well, They're really terrific eating. Isn't Pollock what goes into like um, what they call uh, sea legs or? Actually, that's a different species. That's Pacific, that's Pacific Pollock, Pollock, which is not a, it's not quite as um, as, as delicious. It's not yeah. it's not as good as, it's not as good a fish. It's a cousin yeah. that lives in the Pacific again. But that's kind of um, people get confused with these things. Most Atlantic, Pollock, Atlantic Pollock is a beautiful fish, right? Uh, as is the haddock. And yeah. that's what we're hoping that people will uh, decide they want to eat and and demand will, from restaurants. Correct and, and support traditional New England fishing communities yeah. that need that need that support. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Michael, we have to wrap it up here. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, next week, folks, I'm going to have a really interesting show next week. I have uh, Emily Meredith coming on from the Animal Agricultural Alliance, talking about why ag gag laws are a good idea. She's from the industry, from the cattle industry, and she's going to be laying out their position on agricultural gag laws, which I guarantee you is going to be a fascinating talk. So stay tuned. Come back and visit with me next week. And thanks again to my sponsor. And thank you, Michael, for joining me today. Thank you. So long, folks. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.